Thanks, Nate. Woodmont has always had a strong history and tradition of missions, of letting our light shine. Thank you, Nate, for that appropriate offertory. And part of our mission is evangelism. So today, we're going to start a new series on the second purpose of the church, evangelism. You know, all throughout this year during 2018, we are praying and seeking to rediscover our purpose as a church. Who are we? Why are we here as a church? Why does God want a Baptist church on this corner in Nashville, Tennessee? We're going to be talking about that through the lens of the five purposes of the New Testament church that we see in Scripture. We started with worship last month, and now we're going on to evangelism, and then we'll be talking about discipleship, and then fellowship in July, and then in August we'll do a series on ministry, and then by September I hope we have some things in place about who we are as a church, and we're going to be talking about that this fall, about our, our purpose and our mission and our vision a little bit more in depth this fall season. So evangelism, our text for this morning, you may be surprised, comes from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. So in honor of the Lord's word, if you're able to stand this morning, will you stand as I read our text aloud today, Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Okay, evangelism. I'll be honest. I'm sure a lot of you, when you saw this topic, evangelism, you may have been a little bit nervous about taking this on this month. And I confess, I was a little nervous myself about preaching. Apparently, my kids are anxious. I'm passing this on to them, too, because they said they were nervous and anxious about the, scared about the race. So uh, we got to be careful about uh, passing on our anxieties to our children, apparently. I don't think it's because of this series. I hope not. I remember I was on a panel of um, ministers at Lifeway reviewing a curriculum, a new curriculum they were coming out with, and one of the guys on the panel was telling me about all these people that he was witnessing to, like on the streets. He was just meeting folks and just sharing the gospel with them, and I was, you know, kind of intimidated by him, and I said, wow, that's, that's awesome. That's amazing. You know, I, that's never really been my gift. You know, I'm not really gifted at evangelism, and he said, oh, no, brother, it's not a gift. It's a calling, and you're called to it just as much as I am. And since that time, I've really taken that to heart. We are called to evangelize, aren't we? It's clear in Scripture. But what does that look like? That's what we're going to be talking about all month long. You know, when he said it's a, it's a calling, I just kind of hung my head. There's nothing you can say to that. It, it is a calling. So is there any other topic in the church today 
that causes so much awkwardness and so much fear and so much guilt over not evangelizing? I'm not sure there is. You know, I, I think we all know the truth that we are called to evangelize. I don't think anyone here would argue with that. I think it's clear in Scripture. But the word evangelism carries a lot of baggage in our culture today, doesn't it? You know, it may conjure up images of going downtown, maybe for a Preds game, or you're taking your in-laws who are in town to the Country Music Hall of Fame, or you're going to the, the State Museum, whatever, and, and some well-meaning Christian group is down there, and they're handing out what we call gospel tracts. You know what a tract is? You ever had somebody evangelize you downtown? Oh, it's always interesting. It may conjure up images of Mormons showing up at your door, knocking with their ties and their name tags. You may think about uh, evangelism explosion or, or programs like that that you've been through before. Door knocking. Maybe the four spiritual laws like Campus Crusade uses. Maybe those kinds of programs come to your mind and you may start getting a knot in your stomach. <laughs> Talking to strangers? What? Talking to people about Jesus? You know, words like evangelism are increasingly not well received in our culture, are they? You know, words like evangelist, ooh, I guess that's better than televangelist, right? My friends laugh that we're on TV, they're like, you're a TV preacher, you're a televangelist. Evangelicals, oh man, that word's taken on a whole new meaning in this current political climate, hasn't it? Evangelical. But while we're aware of the, the cultural baggage that comes along with these words, we can't allow the culture to dictate what these words mean, right? Today I want to recover the truth of what these words mean at their core. I love words. I'm kind of a word geek, you know, the etymology of, of words. We're going to break down some words today, okay? So hang with me. The word evangel, like evangelist, evangelism, e evangelical, it comes from two Greek words. The first one is you, which is good, right? You means good. Euphonium is a good sound. A eulogy at a funeral is a good word about somebody. You means good. And angel, angel, you see the word angel in evangelism? What do angels do? They bring tidings. They're messengers. They bring news. So angel means message or tidings. So you, angel, means good news. That's what evangel means. And that is word in Greek is euangel, and that's translated as gospel in our Bibles. The word gospel comes from the old English godspell. You've seen the play godspell? You know, God doesn't mean like the Lord God in Old English. It means good. And spell is like a spiel, right? It's, it's a story. Good story. That's what it means. God's spell means good tidings, good message, good news. Gospel is our word for euangel. It simply means good news, and it's used over a hundred times in our New Testament both as a verb and as a noun. We know good news is a noun, but how can it be a verb? Well, the, the Greek word euangelizomai means I bring good news. It's the same word that the angels use in Luke chapter 2, a story that we're all familiar with, I hope. 
when the angels appeared to lowly shepherds who were out in the fields watching their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, Luke 2, 9, chapter, uh, 2, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ's Mashiach, the Lord. I bring you good news, euangelizomai. It's one word in Greek. This is the word that we celebrate at Christmas each year. The angels declare the good news that Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, had finally come to earth to rescue his people. This was the good news that all God's people had been waiting for for centuries. Ever since they had heard this news announced in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. You know, when the Apostle Paul proclaimed the Gospel in the New Testament, when he euangelizomide, when he evangelized, he said that the good news was in accordance with the Hebrew Scriptures. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it'll be on the screens, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, the gospel, the word there is euangel, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The promise of the gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. The gospel begins in Genesis, not in Matthew. And that brings us to our Old Testament text today in Isaiah. The Old Testament prophets, prophets foretold of a deliverer a righteous king, an anointed one who would come to rescue his people, to save them from oppression and from bondage forever. And if ever there was a time when God's people needed good news, needed gospel, it was when they found themselves as slaves in the pagan foreign land of Babylon. The temple in Jerusalem the holy city of Israel had been burned and razed to the ground. Only a few Israelites were left scattered around the countryside in Judea. Almost the entire race of the Jewish nation had been captured and hauled off as property, as slaves, as human instruments of building and labor to the pagan place of Babylon. So God sends the prophet Isaiah to his people to graciously give the exiles gospel news. Four times in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, four times in those 15 chapters, the prophet announces the good news that is to come. The, the prophet's asking us to use our imaginations here in chapter 52. So join me in imagining that were standing among the ruins, the wastelands, he says in, in chapter 52. They're standing among the wastelands of Jerusalem, a city in ruins. 
and we're anxiously awaiting and watching for a messenger to bring us the news that Babylon has been defeated, that the yoke of oppression has been broken, that God has done what he promised he would do, and that the exiles are coming home. Suddenly we see a lone messenger, one guy just running towards the city over the hills of Jerusalem. And at first we may be skeptical or even alarmed. Why is this guy sprinting towards us with such urgency? But as he gets closer, we can see that he's got a grin from ear to ear, that he's got good news to bring. And he can't wait to tell it, and we can't wait to hear it. Verse 7 tells us what the message that he shouts to us is. As he approaches, Isaiah 52, 7 tells us that he publishes peace. He says, we have peace. No more war. And there's goodness of happiness. It's good news, not no more bad news. We can finally be happy. And there's salvation. We are saved. God's delivered us. He's shouting these things out. And then when he finally stops, he just gasps, your God reigns. In that moment, all of our doubts and all of our fears that God has abandoned us, that he wouldn't fulfill his promises, they all fly away. We know that God has done it. And as we look down, we see that the messenger's feet are absolutely filthy. They're completely brown, covered in the dust and the dirt. They're torn up from the the pebbles and the rocky terrain of the ancient Near East. And I don't know about you, but feet really gross me out, okay? They're gross. They're, they're dirty. They're smelly. I don't like them. I was talking with Dominic about track shoes, and he and, uh, and his friend Lauren run the steeplechase, and they end up in water, right? And I said, your shoes must smell horrible. And they said, they do. They smell terrible. <laughs> that grosses me out. I don't like feet. They carry fungus and bacteria, but when we see the feet of this messenger who has run to bring us good news, they can be transformed from something that's dirty and torn up into something staggeringly beautiful because they have carried the gospel to us. They have delivered good news to us. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings gospel. This is the message that he ran to bring. So when we say gospel, what are we talking about? What what exactly is the gospel? It's one of those words that we hear a lot and maybe even use sometimes, but if I asked you, what is the gospel? How would you reply? We're not all seminary professors, Dr. Rowett here is, but uh, the rest of us aren't. So how would you reply to what the gospel is? Well, it's good news, right? We, we said that before. It's the, the best news that the high and holy God of the universe in his grace and mercy has come to earth to rescue his people. In the flesh, 
living a perfect life among us, giving us words of life to live by, healing the sick, healing the lame, and then dying a perfect death as the sacrificial lamb, taking all of our sin and shame and guilt forever upon his own shoulders and turning the wrath of God into a blessing, giving us his perfect righteousness and taking all of our sin, and then rising again, defeating the power of sin and death forever, changing the entire shape of the cosmos. That's the good news. And the effects of the gospel can be seen here in, in, in chapter 52, verse 7. The, the messenger has three things to say, and they're all results of the gospel. First, he, he publishes peace. That means he announces peace. You know the word for peace is in Hebrew that's used here, right? Shalom. Shalom means more. I've said this before. It means more than the, the absence of conflict. That's how we typically define peace in English, right? Like when all my kids are asleep, there's just relative peace in my household, but there may not be shalom. Shalom is so much deeper than just absence of conflict. Shalom means peace and prosperity. It means flourishing, thriving. That's what shalom means. The good news, the gospel, that our God reigns means that we'll have fullness of life that will flourish as we live at peace with God and with others. Then the second thing the text says that he brings is that the messenger brings good news of happiness. Good news. What does good even mean? In Hebrew, the word for good is tov, like mazel tov, right? It means good, right? It's the same word that God used when he described his perfect, sinless creation back in Genesis 1. He pronounced it was, remember, remember, very good. And in Hebrew, there's no superlative, so it says tov, tov. Very good. All as it should be. When God reigns, it is very good. It is tov, tov. And the last thing the messenger announces is salvation. You know what the word for salvation is in Hebrew? Yeshua. You know what Yeshua is? That's the same name that the angel Gabriel told Mary that she was to name her baby boy, Yeshua, which in Greek is Jesus, which is where we get Jesus. It means salvation. And the Yeshua of God breaks the chains of evil and of sin and of Satan forever from every bondage, but especially the bondage of sin. It means total deliverance. It means complete freedom and, and, and being able to live free without the chains of evil and sin. And it re removes the ultimate punishment, the ultimate destruction of death and judgment. So shalom, tov, yeshua, flourishing, goodness, salvation. These are what happens when God reigns and his good news comes. I'm not proposing a set of outlines or a, 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 a gospel tract for you to memorize as part of our series on evangelism, but there are some helpful things that I want to give you, including this outline to help you explain 
the gospel to others, not just so that you can know what the gospel is, but to help you explain to others, yes, this is about evangelism. The gospel message contains four essential truths about God, humans, Jesus, and the necessary response. These four things that we must at least have somewhere to talk about the gospel. First, God is the perfect creator of all things. He's the one who existed before time and will never die, and he's working to redeem all things, and one day will make everything completely new again. Second, humans. Humans are special in creation because we are made in God's image, but we're also deeply flawed and broken, and we have chosen our own way over God's way time and time again which is rebellion against God, which is what we call sin. Humans in our image-bearing selves are beautiful and amazing creatures with dignity and value and worth, but we have sinned, all have sinned. But the good news is also that all people have the capacity to be restored into a loving relationship with God. Third, Jesus is God's own son. He's the unique son of the living God whose sinless life gave him the ability to be the perfect sacrifice. His death and resurrection have defeated the power of sin and death for those who put their trust in him now. And finally, the response that God requires from all of us is to acknowledge our sin, to repent, and to believe in Jesus and his ability to save us. If we do that, then we have to turn from sin. We, we believe in Jesus. We trust in his ability to make us right with God, with the understanding that we will follow him the rest of our days. It, it doesn't really matter what outline you use to present the gospel to someone, but somewhere in there, you need to have these basic truths about God, about people, about Jesus, and about the required response. Okay, some of you may already be squirming. You're thinking, oh, I'm supposed to share this. Am I supposed to memorize these points? Am I supposed to start telling these four things to people? Does he really expect me to share the gospel with someone? Well, yes and, and no. I, I don't want to be one of those preachers who says to our church, you should do this and you should do that and cause a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. Even as I was writing this sermon, I, I kept catching myself using the word should, and I, I had took it out. I'm going to try not to use that word unless it's really appropriate and helpful, because sometimes it is. Jesus used the word should when he instructed his disciples in John chapter 13. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are some key things that we as Christians should be about in evangelism is certainly one of them. Jesus made evangelism his number one priority in his mission. Look at Luke 
chapter 19, verse 10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and save the lost was the whole point of Jesus' mission. Some of Jesus' final words to his followers are found in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. It's out on the sign over there on, Hill, on Hillsborough Road right now. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, the euangelion, to the whole creation. Christopher Wright is one of my favorite theologians. He's a, a, a British scholar and probably the greatest living scholar on the mission of God and the mission of God's people. He says the mission of God's people is to bring good news to a world where bad news is endemic. Isn't that great? I can get fired up about evangelism that looks like that, that looks like bringing good news to a world where bad news is endemic. But at the risk of sounding critical, I think sometimes we miss the point of, of true biblical evangelism. Too often churches pick up on a new fad, on some catchy evangelistic program. The staff then we mobilize leaders to administrate the program. Andy makes some cool graphics and then the members are encouraged to go out on a raid, seeing people as targets to hit, as prizes to be won. I don't want to do evangelism like that. I love John Stott. He's, a, he's dead now. He's an Anglican priest. He wrote this in 1990. It'll be on the screen, I think, because it's so good. When we contrast much contemporary evangelism with Paul, okay, this is a, a commentary on Acts that he wrote, its shallowness is immediately shown up. Our evangelism tends to be too ecclesiastical. That means church-centered. Inviting people to church, that's not really evangelism. Whereas Paul also took the gospel out into the secular world. It's too emotional. Second thing, appeals for decision without an adequate basis of understanding. Whereas Paul taught, reasoned, and tried to persuade. And then third, it's too superficial. Making brief encounters and expecting quick results. Whereas Paul stayed in Corinth and Ephesus for five years, faithfully sowing gospel seed and in due time reaping a harvest. Man, that's good. That's, that's dead on. I know one lady who has evangelized one Kurdish family in this town for over 20 years. She has befriended and loved this family in the hopes that she's faithfully sowing gospel seeds and still waiting to see that harvest come. I don't want to do shallow evangelism here. I don't want to just ask people to come to church. I want us to take the gospel outside these walls to a world that desperately needs it. I don't want to get people into a, a frenzy where they make some emotional decision. Youth ministry, we've been to conferences where that happens. I want us to teach the gospel and Christ's commandments with clarity, and I want to humbly take apart the false doctrines of our culture. And I sure don't want to do shotgun evangelism where we try to close the deal with some strangers so that we can put another notch on our belt. 
I want us to intentionally and relationally engage with people who are lost and searching. What I really want is for Woodmont Baptist Church to have a culture of evangelism that it currently doesn't. What I really want is for myself, for our staff, for our deacons, for our small group leaders, for all of us to consistently and openly share our faith with others. I want us to basically do two things well. First, I want us to be people who are captured by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus. And then second, I want us to give ourselves away for lost people. These two things are related, and the second must flow out of the first. So the first thing, are you completely captivated by the good news? Do you, are you amazed at what Christ has endured on, on your behalf, on what he's done for you, on what God has done for you in Christ? Do you love to abide in Christ and in his word and with his people? Is it your life's goal to know him and the power of his resurrection? Our love of Christ must compel our evangelism. It's the fuel that feeds evangelism. You know, the great British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way back in 1870. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. Wow. If we love Jesus with all that we are, and if we've surrendered ourselves to follow him and to know him and to ultimately become like him, then we will all be missionaries spreading his kingdom here as it is in heaven. Second, we must care about the people who Jesus cares about, the lost around us. Luke chapter 15 says this, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Think about that. No matter how great our worship is in here, if we have a thousand godly Christian people in this room singing at the top of our lungs and, and that we have a great worship time in here, 
Heaven does not rejoice near as much as if one person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Are we passionately seeking after the lost like Jesus did to you and to me? Or are we content to simply be part of the the in crowd here? You know, Marcus Voller, the chairman of our deacons for this year, is leading a, a men's group to study a book on evangelism called Tell Someone. All you guys are invited to join us in chapel classroom, 615 on Tuesday mornings. It's early, but it's been great. Marcus is convinced that we have to be intentional about evangelism. He said to me, you know, it hit me. If, if we don't see people coming to Christ and coming to faith, if we don't see conversion growth at Woodmont, what are we doing? What's the future of our church? Tom Rayner, the president of, of Lifeway, writes a lot about why churches die. It happens all the time. 200 churches a month close their door in the United States for good. He wrote a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church in which he boldly says, we have become so comfortable and complacent with the way that we do church that we don't want any outsiders to mess it up. In other words, we will fight for our precise worship style or for the color carpet that we want, but we will yawn at the thought of our neighbors going to hell. Again, I'm I'm no great evangelist. I struggle with this stuff as much as anyone, but I think we need a wake-up call. I pray that by God's grace and for His glory, we'll be able to be a church that is truly captivated by the claims of the gospel. That the flourishing, the goodness, the salvation that comes with God's reign would, would all captivate our hearts in a way that compels us to go and tell others. And I pray that we can be a church that passionately pursues lost people. If, you know, we're going to unpack these two ideas the rest of this month. But for now, can we agree to be this kind of church where we have a culture of evangelism? Will you agree to be a missionary who loves Jesus and finds him more precious than life itself? Will you do what it takes to see lost people find their true home in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord God, we know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We know that our town, our community, this neighborhood is full of people who are lost and searching. God, we believe that this is life and death, that there are eternal consequences at stake here. We know this life is so short, God. Use us. Use us to see souls converted, to see life restored, because we love you and we love others. We want to see people come to saving faith and the knowledge and the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, to share the same kind of salvation that we've received by grace through faith with others. Open our eyes to see those around us who are lost and searching. Help us to remember the beauty of the gospel. Our dirty feet can become beautiful when we bring good news to those who need it. And our world is full of people who need it. Oh God, this news is too good to keep to ourselves. Help us to get over our fears, get over our pride, get over 
any sense of awkwardness because we know what's at stake. God, you have called us to spread your kingdom. Let us be found faithful. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you've never received Jesus Christ in that way, if you have been walking through life in darkness and you're ready to come home to Jesus and receive the free gift of salvation that he offers by grace through faith, if the gospel message has compelled you to lay yourself down on the altar today, I invite you to come forward now during our time of invitation as we sing our invitation hymn. If you need a church family and you're ready to place your membership here at Woodmont and be a part of this evangelism effort that we're going to be doing, then we'd love to receive you into membership and talk with you about what that looks like and what that means. Whatever decision that you need to make at this time, we invite you to make it. We're also going to have a time of prayer as well. I'm going to ask Trey and Rachel if you'll come forward as well, if you'll come stand here at the front. I'm going to ask if you want to receive prayer this morning with Trey or with Rachel, this is a great time to do so. I'm going to ask Ed Fulcher, too, if you'll come. Ed, if you'll come stand here. And if you want to pray with any of these people during this time, uh, they would love I pray with all of them. They are trained and ready to pray with you. If you have any concern that you just want to pray about, or if you just want to bring yourself to the altar and pray here at the altar, bringing your body to where your soul is at the feet of Jesus, then come forward during this time. Come, all Christians, be committed. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. <laughs>